Thank you, Cole. And good morning, everybody. Hey, I, you know, days like this make you happy for snow plows, live streaming, and the Holy Spirit that brings us all together, wherever we are. Uh, thank you all for braving the snow, making it here today. Thank you, everybody out on live stream. I know half of my family is with you out there. Raise your hand. Yeah. All right, actually, here's a chance to raise your hand. This is how I want to start. Think of what year were you born? Now, when I count to three, I want everybody to shout that year out. Okay, ready? Nice and loud. One, two, three. <laughs> All right. I heard more 19s than anything, but there's some younger people out here too. Now, remember that year. Okay, and here's my opening story. In 1809, I didn't hear any 18s out there, but... Uh, in 1809, the entire world was anxiously focused on one man, Napoleon Bonaparte. He was a genius, high-powered military commander with a touch of Hitler-like megalomania thrown in. He wanted to conquer the world and was well on his way of doing so. The whole world trembled at his ambition and anxiously awaited any news from the war front that might affect them. Yet in that same year, 1809, Babies were being born all around the world. The world took little notice of these babies during the time that Napoleon was erasing the European map. Yet the seeds of revolutionary changes were being planted in that year. The great English poet Alfred Lord Tennyson was born that year. William Gladstone, the Prime Minister of England, was born that year. And in a log cabin in Kentucky, so was Abraham Lincoln born in that year. When God wants to change history, he doesn't start with battles. He starts with babies. Some of those babies grow up to be God's deliverers, and that is us. And that is also where our story begins this morning in Exodus chapter 2, which we'll be journeying through together each verse. Would you open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Exodus chapter 2 and Pull out your sermon notes from the bulletin if those help. If you need a bulletin, raise your hand. The guys will pass one to you. We've got a couple up there. Good. Those help everyone stay along. So Exodus chapter 1, the verses will be on the screen, but it's great to have your Bible open, especially when we're going through so much. The Exodus story is foundational to the entire human race. Let me repeat that. The Exodus story that we're journeying through together right now is foundational to the entire human race. It's where the worship of God was started, was formulated. But remember, we also highlighted last week the fact that the Bible, uh, I know most of you heard this, but if you didn't, catch this because it's important as we begin such an amazing epic adventure story as the Exodus that, we're be, that we'll be going through for the next several months. We made the point last week that the Bible is not a collection of many stories, like most of us grow up thinking that it is. It's a bunch of, bunch of different stories. No, it's one story. Remember one story. It's the story of the universe, God's big story, a story that we are still a part of right now. We're living right in the middle of it, maybe towards the end of it. Only God knows. But one thing we need to know about this story is that there is one central focus. You remember who that is? It's Jesus, who created the world and for whom the world, the universe, was created. 
He's at the center. And so we need to keep those things in mind, that it's one story, that we're living in it now, and that Jesus is at the center as we go on. And we're going to look at this amazing part of the story, Exodus. It's a major part of the big, big story of God. And last week, we picked up, we found that it was Exodus begins 400 years after Genesis, the first book of the Bible, ends. That's where we pick up in the book of Exodus. God's chosen people now had grown from a clan of about 70 to a nation of two to three million that was living within Egypt as in abject slavery, slavery of every kind. And we saw last week the need for freedom. And we saw four types of slavery that had bound them that are still sadly alive and well today. That's political slavery, economic slavery, social slavery, and spiritual slavery. All gripping the world in their grip, even today, especially today. And if you missed last week's sermon, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to it or watch it uh, on your own time. I think that would be a good investment. I don't normally recommend that, but I don't normally kick off a six-month sermon series either. So we're going to be in this for a long time. It would really help to set the foundation for where God, the Holy Spirit is taking us in this series, to go back and listen to uh, chapter 1. We connected with the Israelites. We connected with their pain. We connected with the harsh realities of our present world. And we connected with God's heart in them all, which is that God is moving the world to freedom. He's moving us to, to freedom from the things that have us in bondage and oppress us. And today, God begins his answers to all oppression. His revolution, his plan, which is still unfolding today in us and through us. And it begins with a baby. In Exodus chapter 2, God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And in this chapter, God is going to reveal a couple things to us today. He's going to reveal his methods to leading the world to freedom and then his motivation for leading the world to freedom. So let's begin at the first part of Exodus chapter 2 with God's methods that lead to freedom. We're going to see how God works, how God works, how he works in this world, how he works in his word, how he works in us and through us, and you'll experience some of those things right now, even today. He is moving the world to freedom, and his methods begin right here. In verses 1 through 10, the first thing we see is that God appoints deliverers. There are some who will be appointed deliverers. And I'm going to say up front, so nobody misses it, to connect your story with Moses' story. That's the idea that God has in his word and for us today. We're going to look at Moses' story but I want you to do so through the lens of, wait, this is my story as well. There's going to be lots to connect with today. So have eyes to see that as we go. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 and see how this kicks off. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. 
She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. What an entrance here. Now, if you remember the circumstances last week, it was the Pharaoh had made a genocidal edict that all the Hebrew baby boys should be killed. And remember that struck terror into the population. It was before ultrasounds. They didn't know if their baby would be a boy until nine months or until the baby was born. So these parents had a baby boy. Now notice some things here as we look over those first three verses. First, as you look at it closely, it's an unusual birth record because usually in the Bible and in ancient literature, it'll give the parents names. And it does not do that this time. The parents are named later in the book, in chapter 6, but not here. The focus is on the baby here. Something else you'll see here is that we're seeing a lot of heroism by women in the first two chapters of Exodus, which is also unusual to ancient literature. But there's a ton of it. It was the midwives in chapter 1 that were the heroes as they stood up uh, to Pharaoh. And it's here, it's Moses' mom, sister, and Pharaoh's daughter that you're going to see here. And this plainly reveals God's perspective on women who are heroes. Amen? Happy birthday to my wife, Sarah, by the way, who's at home with a snotty kid. Um, sorry y'all couldn't be here, but happy birthday nonetheless. Yes, women are heroes. All right, so notice that. Don't miss that. Third, here in these opening verses, is about the basket that carried Moses to his rescue. And this is so cool. Here's just a picture. There's been lots of artists that have done pictures over the years. The word for basket here, the Hebrew word teva, is only used one other time in Scripture, and it is for Noah's ark. Literally, this says, Moses' mom put him in an ark and floated him down the river to save his life. And his mom covered this little ark with bitumen and pitch, just as Noah did the ark to make it waterproof. Same thing. Now that our family has moved to Indiana, right next to Kentucky, we want to take a trip to the Ark Encounter in the Creation Museum. Has anybody ever been there before? Yeah. Who would be interested in going there maybe this spring? A little road, little church field trip. I would love to also. I want to link these because you see the same thing going on as God raises up deliverers, okay? In all through the Bible and today, right here in this room, God is raising up his deliverers. Just as God's hand of protection was on his deliverer, Noah, and his ark, so it was with the deliverer, Moses, in his little ark. I mean, the Nile River is a big river. There's crocodiles. There's raging water. This was terrifying for his mom. She had no idea what would happen as she sent him out into the river. But let's keep going, and we find out in verses 4 through 10, we see what I think is the granddaddy of all ironies uh, in the actions of Pharaoh's daughter. Right? This is the irony of ironies right here. Let's just read verses 4 through 10. Follow along with me as we read the story. And his sister, Moses' sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, 
Shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is so great. Let me just recap this. On the one hand, Pharaoh had decreed the drowning of all baby boys. Then Pharaoh's own daughter finds the baby boy, this Hebrew baby boy, has pity on him. And again, we find female heroism in the midst of male abuse of authority and God furthering his plan through it. Very unusual in ancient literature. And again, this is Pharaoh's own daughter, the daughter of the Israelites' oppressor, saves the man who will save the Israelites. This is the best irony of of, of all time. And herein lies another truth, friends, and some of you need to hear this today, and that is that your family is not your destiny. Some people come from a flat-out evil background, and God will rescue you anytime and restore you and redeem you and redeem that past. And some of you need to know that today and be comforted by that. Here's Pharaoh's daughter, and you can hear her saying something like, oh, he's so cute. I just want to scoop him up. I'm going to rescue him. But she was a young princess, right? She was not ready to be a mom at this point. So out comes Moses' daughter from behind the reeds and says, hey, would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to help you with that baby? And she said, yes, go. So she went and got her mom, Moses' mom. I just love that. And she got paid to do it and got access to the palace. Ah, this is just so cool. So Pharaoh got to name the baby. He named, she named him Moses, which means to draw out. And that even is a perfect name for the one who would draw out God's people from slavery in Egypt. And we see another important point here. And that is we may think the world is falling apart, but God's got this. And he's always working in things in ways that we don't understand, but he gives us these glimpses of the way that he cares and that he works through all these things. Think how terrifying all of that would be until it all works out. Well, God is working, and he's working out his perfect will in this broken world. And when things go wrong in your life and sideways in your life, you can know this, and you can trust him. He's working his good for those who love him. Keep trusting in him. And if you are a true Christian, a believer in Jesus, you are also a God-appointed deliverer. And you can have 100% full trust in him working out the events of your life, your past and your present and your future. And we're going to see how as we continue this story. God gave you certain gifts God gave you events in your life that have led you to where you are today. He's given you influence in the world that only you have. And he's doing all this development before he even gives a calling, which is our next sermon in chapter 3, when Moses finally gets his calling. But he's got a lot of developing to do 
first. How exciting. How exciting. Who is God going to bring into his kingdom through you? For that person, you are a deliverer of God. That's exciting. Well, so far, God preserved Moses from the decisions of other people. Now he's going to have to preserve Moses from his decisions. How many people can relate to that? God does that too. And that's another one of God's methods to lead people to freedom. We see next, point B, that God develops deliverers. He appoints deliverers. He had his hand on Moses. Now he's going to develop us. This part of the story gets pretty exciting. Contains things that will develop Moses and that will develop us. And I just pray the Holy Spirit gives each of us eyes to see uniquely how God has his hand on us, developing us. So notice as I start in verse 11 that much time has passed. Moses grew up and it zeroes in on a, on a pivotal event in his life. And here it is, verse 11. One day, Moses, when Moses had grown up, he went out, out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, let me stop right there. Notice some things about Moses here. He had grown up, and he's developing. He was aware of his people. He knew who his people were. He was concerned for his people. He noticed their burdens. And he is instinctively intolerant of injustice. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this, especially young people. You have this sense of injustice in your, in your heart. And I want you to just take notice what kind of injustices in the world, evil in the world, pain in the world, breaks your heart. Because as we'll see from Moses, it's the hand of God on you right now. He's going to use those things as he develops you into the deliverer in those areas. That's pretty exciting, right? Let's just see what God had, where he has each of us right now and how he's developing us. Now also, admirably, Moses doesn't have a slave mentality here, unlike his fellow Hebrews who were flat out demoralized by their oppression. He isn't going to be a victim and sit around and worry, no. He is going to act. Act, he does. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. <laughs> That's some action, right? And now here we come again to a question of ethics. Ethics is how to identify right and wrong in these sticky and tricky situations. And we look, did Moses do the right thing or did he do the wrong thing? And as we look, this is what we find. Now, some people might instantly say, of course, he was fully justified to kill the guy. Uh, even the Bible gives allowance for self-defense, which it does. But when you look at Moses' own conscience here, he knows that he's doing something maybe wrong. And some people believe that since God still used Moses, he must have approved Moses' action. I would argue more that God redeemed Moses' action here. And we don't get a full glimpse inside of Moses' heart to really know what he was feeling and thinking here. But we do know that like Moses, our story includes redemption of anything we've done in the past. 
Through the blood of Jesus, it's all forgiven and washed away and made new. And not just left there, but no, it's transformed into who we are and what we've learned from. God is going to redeem that in Moses' life just as he does ours. Our sins, our failures, our setbacks, everything in life, God can redeem that for the people who are pursuing Christ. And he does, and he will, and he'll continue. So, trust in Christ. Let's see what Moses does. He does respond well, and we can watch his example. Verses 13 through 15. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. These were his people. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Then Moses was afraid and then thought, surely the thing is known. Yep, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Go back. These two Hebrews, they're fighting. Moses thinks, you know, God has his hand on me. I'm going to intercede here. And how did they respond to him? Well or not well? Not well. Their quote was, who made you a prince and judge over us, the guys asked. Now, they didn't know that soon that's exactly what God was going to make Moses. But he wasn't there yet. He's still being developed. He wasn't there yet. And he's a long way from being there yet. It wasn't God's timing yet. God is still developing Moses for that role. And the same is true with us. We are on God's mission now. And we are. But for our next role, whatever God might have for us next, in the future, he's still developing us for right now while we serve him now. We need to wait for God's timing and cooperate with his development and not rush ahead. All right, when Moses did, as, as the text ends there that we just read, he, he becomes an outlaw. He, he ran. He ran to Midian. And I want to show you on a map where Midian is because this is going to help us see the next stage of Moses' life and what God is doing in it. Now, I chose a map that's really busy. It's got a lot, a lot of stuff on there. And part of the reason I chose this map is to whet your appetite a little bit for, oh, the Red Sea crossing. Um, it's not 100% known where the Red Sea crossing was, but that's been a debate and study and research of all kinds for millennia, and that's going to be exciting to go through there. But here's what I basically want you to see is they, here's the capital of, of Egypt up there, and somehow Moses ran to Midian down there. Now, notice how strategic that's going to be. He had to flee for his life, but was God providentially in control over that? Oh, Yeah. He took him to Midian, and through all of that, he's going to live there for 40 years, becoming intimately familiar with all this area, which is where all the action happens eventually, and then eventually into the promised land. So that gets us excited about what's coming in the future. Now we come to chapter 2's third story about Moses' development before he finally receives his calling from God in chapter 3, which we'll get to next sermon. Let's look at verses 16 through 22. This is the third story about Moses' development that God gives us about his life. 
Now, the priest of Midian, here he is a Midian, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. Who are these shepherds, right? They came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. For the third time, Moses confronts the evil that he sees around him. And this time, he's growing up a little bit. He doesn't attack he stands. He stands against the oppressors. And I love how one, one writer said that I read this week said, think about Moses. He grew up in the palace as an Egyptian nobleman. He was certainly trained in sophisticated Egyptian warfare, and he was probably armed. These shepherds wouldn't have stood a chance against him if he wanted to fight them. But he didn't. He stood. And we learn and we see that Moses is growing up. He's developing. He's maturing. We also see that God's deliverer is not just a nationalist. He's not only interested in protecting his people anymore. He's become godly, concerned with all justice, all injustice. He stands up for these foreign women. And he not only rescued them, he watered their flock. Moses is becoming what Jesus has called us all to be, and that is a servant leader. A servant leader, which is how Jesus is. God is developing Moses' character before he is ready for God's calling. That's what comes first, and God is doing the same in our lives right now, too, as we let him. Well, the rest of these verses move quickly through this stage of his life, which was in reality very long. It was 40 years in Midian. And we're not told a great deal about his time, but what we are told about those 40 years is extremely important. Listen to all the things that God accomplished in this long time of waiting. Just imagine Moses with his family in Midian 40 years before the call of God comes for his ultimate role. In this time, God worked on Moses' humility. He didn't live in the palace anymore. He worked on his humility, and he became a humble man. By living in the wilderness instead of the palace, he learned to depend on God. Those who are wealthy depend on their wealth. Those who have access to medical care depend on their doctors, and on and on and on. When all that's taken away, you learn to depend on God, which we all need to depend on anyway for every breath. Moses learned that. By having a family, he learned to lead, guide, and discipline those he loved. That will come into play as well. By working with shepherds, he learned to develop skills he would need to lead the Israelites through a very long wilderness journey ahead with their flocks and herds. 
Don't you see the value of remaining faithful in every season of life as God develops you for the next one? College and seminary students or recent grads or people just at a various crossroads of your life, I've been there lots of times in my life, and this is a message for all of us. Remain faithful, trusting God, praying. I pray, God, give me eyes to see what you're doing around me, if it be your will. But even if not, trust God. He is redeeming your past. He's sharpening your skills. He's growing your maturity. Love him every moment of the journey. In chapter 3, we're going to see what God does next when the development and the time are right in his deliverer. Then he calls people. And anyone who has wondered, what is my calling in life? You don't want to miss that message in chapter 3. But before God's deliverer is called, chapter 2 concludes with an incredibly important aspect that we must know about God. We've looked at God's methods for leading people to freedom. Now we're going to see his motives, his motivations for freedom. God's motives for freedom. Moses ends chapter 2 with this closing, verses 23 through 25. We read, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Again, much time is covered by these verses, enough time for this Pharaoh to die and for another one to come into power. Would this one be better than the last one? Would our oppression end? No. No, Uh, it at least continued, if not got worse. And pay close attention, Israel groaned. Now, that's natural to groan, but there's a good way of groaning and there's a bad way of groaning, right? And we all know that. We fall into the bad way of groaning really easily, so we need to be aware of this. There's a good way of groaning and a bad way of groaning, and Israel chose the right way of groaning here. Look, they groaned. What's the first thing they did? They cried out to God for help. Yes, this right here. This is what we need to do first. In our groaning, to cry out to God for help, not get defeated. We don't need to be defeated because God is sovereign and he's in control and he's got this. Not filled with anxiety. We don't need to be filled with anxiety, not depressed. We're not lost and spiraling out of control with no help and no hope. Not at all. God is there. And we cry out to God first. That's the first thing we do. In the small problems uh, throughout our daily life and in the massive problems that consume us, same response, first thing we do, cry out to God. As I prepared this, I've been employing this again this week. All week, I've been crying out to God first. It's awesome. And I invite you to join me and, and help make that a habit in our lives. When we cry out, Look what happens. Look what happens. He's so thorough in the way he communicates this to us. Middle of verse 23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. You do that with the right heart, and our prayers get past the ceiling. They came up to God, and God 
heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant to love us and to never give up on us and to always be there with us. God saw them, and God knew. And God moves the world to freedom so that we can worship him. He'll say that again and again in Exodus. And God moves the world to freedom when we cry out to him. I want to take that right into the next steps today. Number one, cry out to God today for, and just fill in the blank. Get your pens, get your hearts, your prayers ready. Cry out to God. What do you have to cry out today to God for? We all have lots. We have little things, personal things, things on our minds for other people, bigger picture things. Let me ask you, how long do you take before you cry out to God? You know what? Sometimes that's the last thing we think of. It needs to be the first thing we think of. Let's do this right now. Get that pen ready. Don't wait. Write some things down here or just pray right now where you are. You can start right now crying out. Let's start with personal slavery. What has control in your life that shouldn't? Maybe some other person. Maybe something in your past. Maybe addiction of some kind. Maybe you need forgiveness. Maybe you need help. Personal slavery is going to need a lot of personal crying out. And God invites you to do that, and he moves. That's his motive for setting you free. How about the needs of somebody else in your life? People that you love that are going through hard times. Of all kinds. This is called intercession. When we intercede, when we pray for somebody else, we cry out for somebody else, especially those in your life who need salvation to be saved to eternal life in Jesus. Cry out to God for them. And you can write that down right now. And the bigger pictures of political slavery, economic slavery, social slavery that we looked at last week, those are real in our community, in our nation, in our world. Who's going to cry out for those if not the church? The pagan world isn't crying out to God for this. It's got to be the church. And church... We're one of three million local churches spread out all over the world. And as we pray, God moves the world to freedom. We need to be a praying church. And we're committed to do that here. We'll have corporate prayer meetings of all kinds, of all sizes. And I'm going to encourage you to be a part of all those in our small groups, all kinds of things. Um, to join the prayer uh, movements around town, whether it be the Warsaw Capitol Building or the D.C. Capitol Building. We pray for the world. We cry out to God. And how does God answer? How does God answer? Well, we just learned here. He raises deliverers, people like us, to be the impact in the world, to lead people to freedom. And so number two, and next step number two is commit today to God, to be God's deliverer to those people in your life. This is you. God didn't save you for no reason. Once you trusted him. Like Moses, our stories begin as a baby. We all have that in common. But Jesus saved us for these purposes, to worship him and then to go deliver other people to the freedom to worship him with us. In our men's leadership class that we just launched last week, it was a great start. One of the things that we're going to be doing as men and keeping us accountable to do is, is fill out our seven for heaven list. Seven for heaven. It's got a nice ring, right? That helps us remember. So we're identifying seven people who are in our lives that God has placed us in their lives 
uh, who don't know Jesus yet, and we're going to pray them, Lord willing, into the kingdom of God to be free to worship God, to be freed by Jesus. I would encourage you to do the same thing, and you can write them down here. If you can think of seven, hey, that's a great, that's a good, that's a good goal. I'm sure you can. And as a church, I have an exciting announcement about next Sunday. When we're thinking church body picture, um, we began this year in the Vision and Goals sermon saying that 2021 is going to be the year of vision, uh, creating a vision for the future of this church. It's going to take all year. We're not in a big hurry. Uh, We want to just walk through that process together. But one of the things that we'll be assessing is who has God put in our lives? Uh, What's the influence that we can have uniquely? And for one, it's a no-brainer. Warsaw has become an area, this whole area, um, of a rapidly growing Hispanic community. And we are in a church with a rich history of being a diverse church. So that's, an, that's what I call a no-brainer. What has, what has God laid on the hearts of our church? And so this is something that we're committed to continuing and developing into the future as the Hispanic population grows in our community. And frankly, the church's impact into that community has not kept pace And we are committed. And we're talking to other groups, other churches. And I have a special announcement for next Sunday. We're going to have a special guest with us, Daniel Sandoval, Director of Spanish World Ministries, who will join me here uh, on Sunday morning and examine Scripture and God's leading for us in this area. We're not going to have it all figured out by next Sunday. These are steps in the process. And it's going to be a great time. It's going to be a bit more of a multicultural service next Sunday than usual. I'd encourage you to invite, invite uh, friends. Uh, it's going to be great. I just want to inform you that that's coming up as our church goes forward into God's future for it. Let's pray now and cry out for God's leading on each and every one of us and as a church family. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that you gave us your word, moving it through your Holy Spirit, Connect us right in intimately with every part of the story. And here we are today, and we see our connection with Moses and all your other deliverers that you raise up, and your promise that you still do that today. Your promise that you still hear and see and know and remember your covenant with us. We thank you for moving on our behalf, moving in us, and calling us to be your partners in this, the co-mission of Jesus. We pray that we'll be committed, that we'll be uninhibited worshipers of yours, uninhibited to lead others into freedom through Jesus Christ. We pray your blessings on this day, uh, wherever anybody is right now, in the living rooms, right here in our fellowship. As we close now, I pray your spirit to do powerful things in us, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.